All right. Shh. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Scum. Your sermonator this evening will be our very own Adam Skinner. So please give him a big welcome. Round of applause again. All right. One more time. Keep it going. That's right. Come on up here, buddy. Go at him. Go at him. Come on up. Keep it going. Come on. Keep it going. Yeah, that's better. All right. Adam's on staff here at SCUM. He does outreach and various other things. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's going to present a topic that's going to be good, good stuff tonight. This is number two in our Staff Rant series, Staff Passion series, whatever, something. So anyway, all right, one more time for Adam. Woohoo! And now that we've all got our expectations very high, you may lower them as far as you would like. No, thanks, everybody. Um, my name is Adam. I do work here. This is not the announcements like it usually is when I'm up here. Um, I want to go ahead and uh, pray real quick that I do this right. So join me in that. <sighs> Father God, we love you. Thank you for this place. Thank you for a chance to love each other well uh, and to learn how to do that better. Um, God, you know I have never preached before today. So, uh, you know hijack my mouth and say whatever you want people to hear. Um, may your name be glorified tonight. Thank you. Amen. Uh, and now, a brief tune to set the mood. <laughs> just happened. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. You got to fight for your right to party. You know, musically, I really like that song, and apparently I'm not alone in that. Good to know. Uh, lyrically, it leaves a little more to be desired. I was looking at the lyrics to it since, you know, we only really remember the chorus of any really popular song, uh, but took a minute to look at it, and the Beastie Boys song in tonight's sermon title uh, had lyrics that bemoan the lowly estate of some slacker teenager who skips school, smokes pot, looks at porn, and uh, listens to the Beastie Boys. Surprise. Um, it goes from each verse describing this kid's life uh, directly into a chorus affirming that he, for some reason, has an intrinsic, inalienable right to party, and that he should fight for it, and so should you. 
Now, this is already pretty ridiculous, but it gets better. The Beastie Boys said in an interview uh, that the song was intended as a parody of actual party and attitude songs, but no one got it. <laughs> Neither did I until researching this sermon. Band member Mike D is quoted as saying, The only thing that upsets me is that we might have reinforced certain values of some people in our audience when our own values were actually totally different. There were tons of guys singing along to fight for your rights who were oblivious to the fact that it was a total goof on them. I think the reaction to the song tells us more about the beliefs of the audience than it ever has about the beliefs of the Beastie Boys themselves. I mean... What kind of a world could hear something as ridiculous as you have a right to party and then believe it unquestioningly? A world that wants to hear that. A world that already thinks that way. We really do believe uh, in the West, especially in America right now, that unless somebody gives us a good reason, we don't have a given right. We just have it by, def <clears throat> by default. Like the Corinthians, whose slogan Paul responds to in one of his letters, we think everything is permissible for me. And the burden of proof is on somebody else to disprove that. Our attitude tends to be that if something is limiting us, not only may we respond with a sort of defensive hostility, but we actually should. In other words, it's only right to fight for our rights. And this is what we believe, don't we? If somebody seems to be limiting one of our inalienable life rights, like freedom of speech, we don't just hash it out with that person. We don't settle it quietly. We take it to the Supreme Court and just destroy their ability to ever limit other people in the same way again. If somebody harms us in some little way, then we sue them for everything they have so they're in worse conditions than we have ever been. This is the arms race that we live in, this sort of slugging match, just eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're products of a culture that believes this endless loop of violence is just the way things are. But it's not the kind of world I want to live in. I mean, do you? A world where we're all just sort of criminals, stealing from each other so we don't go broke, you know, attacking each other's rights, just because we don't want people to take ours. There has to be a way to break that cycle, and the one I know I, I want to find is uh, just to, you know, leaf through the Bible, uh, happily just proof texting away, and find something out of context that says, it's okay for me to just build a wall big enough to keep these people out, uh, to just secede from this terrible system, and, uh, you know, stay safe from the crazies who think it's okay to disrespect my rights to protect theirs. Uh, there's, there's a couple of problems with that plan, of course. Uh, but the biggest one is that we are those people. Uh, even here in the church where we talk about in the church and in the world as if they're two totally separate things that never overlap, we tend to think on this topic the same as everyone does. Swimming in entitlement, living on expectations instead of just taking things thankfully and at face value. I catch myself doing this sometimes, and I hate it because it just makes me an ungrateful putz before the Lord. Um, I caught myself doing it this week, actually, uh, when my landlord still uh, hadn't fixed the clog in my bathroom sink. Uh, now, my wife and I live in an apartment just about eight blocks from here, a big house divided into four little apartments. And, you know, it's not an apartment complex, just a privately owned thing. So there's just one guy named Raul, who's my landlord. Good guy. Laid-back guy. Uh, as some of you know, by having the opposite experience, having a laid-back landlord is awesome. I mean, he doesn't mind if I'm a day late with the rent. He doesn't mind if paperwork's delayed on something. I mean, my wife Meg and I were in the apartment for about a week with all of our stuff there before my landlord wanted our lease. He was just telling me, no, 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 you, you got important stuff to do. You just take care of that. We'll get to the paperwork whenever. This is awesome. Um, 
Uh, he's also, of course, then the only sort of de facto maintenance guy. So when I need something fixed, uh, I can, you know, leave him a voicemail or walk the three houses it takes me to get to him and uh, just say, hey, can you fix this? And then I uh, wait. And, and then I wait some more. And then I start getting angry because it's taking so long. And then I wait in the angry manner. And then I leave snarky voicemails. And then I wait. And then it gets fixed because he's, he's a laid-back landlord. Um, this last week, the, the clog in our bathroom sink got so bad that my wife informs me one, one night she's going to be brushing her teeth in the kitchen sink because this is the only one that works. And by this point, I am pissed. Um, I'm paying this guy, right? Why is he not fixing my stuff on time? I caught myself this week thinking that and then realized how remarkably stupid and ungrateful that sort of thought was. I mean, on time? Adam, I think to myself, this is not an apartment complex. This is not some sanitized corporate-owned development in the suburbs with work orders and signed parking spaces. This is a privately owned apartment in the city, which means a few things. It means that uh, I pay very little rent and I pay it whenever. Uh, I can park wherever I darn well please, and no one cares how many inches tall my grass happens to be. Um, uh, I don't live in a suburban complex like I used to, and I am proud of that fact. And yet I expect maintenance services if I still live there. What is wrong with me? Entitlement. That contractual way of thinking based on my own expectations. I came up with an arbitrary definition of what on time would mean. And without checking to see if I was really entitled to it, I started imposing that expectation on somebody else. Raul is my neighbor, whom Jesus says I'm supposed to love, even if he wasn't my physical neighbor, which he still totally is. And here I am leaving passive-aggressive voicemails for him, jeopardizing our relationship uh, because he didn't fulfill a verbal contract that he didn't even make to do maintenance that I'm not even paying for. It's all in my expectations. It's in my delusion about what rights I think I have. But more than that, it's in the way I pursue them, selfishly, as if they were worth more than loving my neighbor well, as the Lord himself commanded. This is a problem. And not just with, you know, the world out beyond our doors, as if that's where it stayed. The problem is me. The problem is us. And the solution, uh, the way to break the cycle of offense and retaliation, is going to have to start with us. This demands an answer, and in pursuit of it, I want to take you to the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, from what is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. That'll be up on the PowerPoint here. Let me read through that real quick. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. There's one thing I want to address before we go on. It's kind of an aside, but I think it's worth taking a minute on. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. In Matthew's account of this teaching, at the end of Matthew 5, uh, he records it as strike you on the right cheek. 
so I want you to try something. Uh, pretend there is somebody's face in front of you, and using only your right hand, try and hit that on the right cheek, which of course would be your left. Don't hit anyone, please. We're going to get a reputation. Like, yeah, I came to scum, and in the middle of a sermon, someone punched me in the back of the skull. Um, <laughs> not a great way to love people. Um, but when you do this, you'll very quickly see the only way to do it without looking really awkward is a backhand, not swinging in with all your force. In a culture that forced everyone to be right-handed, uh, this means a backhand is what Jesus was talking about. Therefore, the one who strikes you on the one cheek is somebody who insults you, not an aggressor in a sort of assault and battery situation. This is mostly important because of how this verse has been abused sometimes. Uh, if you've ever, ever heard the Bible misused to say something like, just for example, to a wife in an abusive relationship, well, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. That's bullcrap, and I'm sorry. Uh, this, uh, this is about dealing with people who offend you, who insult you, not who actually put you in physical harm. And don't let anybody use that out of context. Uh, one other thing to take note of. We Christians are so used to hearing, love your enemies, right, that we don't even think about it anymore. But he was speaking to his disciples, religious Jews, who had heard, uh, as, again, in Matthew 5, the, the corollary to this states, the, the parallel verse says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which they had. And that's fair, right? That's just. It was. So understand that when you hit the first paragraph here and Jesus begins offending you, you're in good company. Uh, for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, this really shouldn't surprise you. Uh, telling us truth we don't want to hear is just kind of his M.O. He says, do good to those who do evil to you. Bless or speak well of those who curse or speak evil things of you. Ask God to come to the aid of those who are denying you that very same aid. If somebody slaps you, don't hit him back. If somebody takes something that belongs to you, don't grab it back. Okay, well, so far so bad. Uh, this sounds totally unfair. Uh, more than that, it seems like a violation of a lot of things that we, here in our place and time, hold dear. Uh, in America, we're fortunate enough to have private ownership, right? And that means there are a few situations where somebody can just come up to you, yank what you have, and legally walk away with it. We know this is just something we can expect, right? That that won't happen. And we have frivolous lawsuits, which we love, uh, where if somebody were to slap you on the one cheek, then you yell assault, and then you sue them for all they're worth. Uh, definitely more than the slap actually cost you. Uh, hint, usually nothing except pride you didn't need anyway. Uh, I mean, if somebody, steals your, uh, somebody slaps you, you slap them back is the way we think. If somebody steals your coat, you grab it back. You don't just say, okay, well, enjoy it. This is what rubs us wrong about this teaching of Jesus. We, we bristle at this because it's unfair. It's even more unfair because Jesus only said this to his disciples. If you want to look this up, the, the context right before this passage, Jesus says this to his disciples, not just, hey, everyone, listen. So not only is he uh, not requiring of this of people who aren't following him, uh, neither can we. This has to start with us. And that also isn't equal or symmetrical or fair, and that still drives me and probably a lot of you crazy. I think we also hate it because it scares us. Uh, if I don't cling to my rights, if I don't lock up my property and, you know, have a controlled access life, then, you know, I could lose something that I value. And that's true. And that frightens us, sometimes even on other people's behalf. Um, Tim Everson, who said I could use this story, uh, had a bike that he really liked when he was a kid. 
And uh, one time he lent that bike to a friend who wasn't excessively careful with things, we'll say. Uh, something happened and the bike was broken irrecoverably and Tim had lost it. When his mom heard about this, uh, she was upset to say the least. And she told him, why did you share that? You, you should have known you might not have get it back. It wasn't wise. And in a way, this is true. But isn't that what Jesus specifically calls us to do here? If you lend, don't expect repayment. Tim lent his bike to a friend following the core of this teaching not knowing for sure he'd get it back or that his possession would be safe. Uh, and giving it away like that, I believe, glorified God immensely. That kind of giving is unconditional. He wasn't lending it on the condition that his right to property be safeguarded. And any time that we t undertake an act of love that is unconditional, I believe God is very pleased. I don't know about you, but I have to admit, my first reaction to the story was actually more like that of Tim's mom. Like, dude, Tim, that wasn't wise. You're going to lose your huffy. Um, I mean, it's what I've been taught by this culture, and I bet you have too. Uh, and I'm not even super attached to my material stuff either. It's the immaterial stuff I have a problem with letting go of. Uh, Jesus says to give up my expectations of repayment, of reciprocity, of fair treatment. And uh, that part just kills me. I mean, this is really hard stuff. But be encouraged by knowing that Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he was afraid of doing himself. For those of you who have been following our, uh, our sermons for a while, um, we just wrapped up with going through the book of Philippians. And I want to look at Philippians 2, 5 through 9. That'll be coming up on the screen there. Let's read through that real quick. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death at a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus had literally every right that any being could have. He, of course, had the right to a fair trial, the right to humane treatment, the right to the respect due to every human being, the same stuff that you and I have. But he also had things like rights to the entire earth as his property. He had the right to have his every order obeyed, his security protected, his very name worshipped. He had literally every right in a way that we'll never be able to say we have every right. But... Verse 6 up here says, he didn't consider those rights something to be grasped, something to cling to, like we so desperately cling to ours. He became obedient when he absolutely didn't have to, mind you, and had rights to the contrary unto a horrific and disgraceful death. You probably stopped and thought at some point, maybe during a sermon around Easter, or maybe just when reading through the Gospels solo, uh, about how painful it must have been physically to be crucified. I mean, it was, it was horrible, horrible. But have you ever stopped and thought about just how disgraceful it was for him? How much a violation of Christ's rights of what is fair? I mean, think of the whole process. Jesus, the incarnate God of justice, stood through a blatantly unjust sham of a trial, listened to people lie about him, called him a blasphemer when he's God himself and thus can't be contradicting God. I mean, what would you be thinking then? I don't think I'd be able to stop myself from just screaming, are all you people insane? You are holding an illegal trial with false witnesses to declare guilty the only truly innocent man that has ever lived 
on the planet Earth, so you can execute the very God you think you are worshiping, you fools. I could call down angels from heaven to destroy this place for a sin like this, and it would be justified. I have that right. And he did have that right. And he didn't use it. Why? He's then let out into the streets, being mocked by these thug guards and crowds of the ignorant and deceived, beaten like a slave when he is master of all, kicked like a dog when he deserves a throne, his flesh ripped and torn by the whip when he had both the power and the ability to stop it. He had the right to even strike dead the men that abused him. That would have been just. That would have been fair. It was his right. And he chose to lay it down because he knew there was something else at stake. Therefore, Paul says, Christ, er, God exalted him highest because he humbled himself lowest. He made the choice to live out these teachings that we see at the Sermon on the Plain as a model of us of how to make the same right choice when there's something else at stake. And there is always something else at stake. As an example of what that might be, uh, there's a news story that I know some of you have already heard since I first heard about it on the Facebook news feeds of a few of you in this room. Thank you. You know who you are. Uh, but I think it's worth sharing again. Uh, this was originally published by NPR in March of 2008, and the article goes like this. Julio Diaz has a daily routine. Every night, the 31-year-old social worker ends his hour-long subway commute to the Bronx one stop early just so he can eat at his favorite diner. But one night last month, as Diaz stepped off the number six train and onto a nearly empty platform, the evening took an unexpected turn. He was walking toward the stairs when a teenage boy approached him and pulled out a knife. He wants my money, so I just gave him my wallet and told him, here you go, Diaz says. As the teen began to walk away, Diaz told him, hey, 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 wait a minute, you, you forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. The would-be robber looked at his would-be victim like, what's going on here, Diaz says. He asked me, why are you doing this? Diaz replied, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do was to get dinner, and if you really want to join me, hey, you're more than welcome. Diaz says he and the team then went into the diner and sat down in a booth. The manager comes by, the dishwashers come by, the waiters come by to say hi, Diaz says. And the kid was like, you know everybody here. Do you, do you own this place? No, I just eat here a lot, Diaz says, he told the team. He says... But you're even nicer than dishwasher. Uh, Diaz replied, well, haven't you been taught you should be kind to everybody? Yeah, but I didn't think people actually lived like that, the teen said. Diaz asked him what he wanted out of life. He just had this sad face, Diaz says. The teen couldn't answer. When the bill arrived, Diaz told the teen, look, I guess you're going to have to pay for this bill because you have my money and I can't pay for it. But if you give me my wallet back, I'll gladly treat you. The teen didn't even think about it and returned the wallet, Diaz says. I gave him 20 bucks. I figure maybe it'll help him. Diaz says he did ask for something in return, the teen's knife, which he handed over. Afterward, when Diaz told his mother what happened, she said, and you're the type of kid that if somebody asks you for the time, you gave him your watch. What is this? Here we have a responsible, respectable human being working a job that helps society, who by every worldly standard I can think of, deserves his, uh, deserves his property that he's earned, plus safety from violence and fear. He deserves not to have this mugging happen at all, but if it does, he at least deserves to walk away as quick as, uh, as, quick as possible and preserve the rest of his day intact. 
I mean, he deserves the right to a quiet evening after working hard all day. And I bet he knew that. He had the right to do the minimum required, just get out of the situation somehow and slip away safe and unentangled. But he chose not to exercise that right because he knew there was something at stake. What was at stake here was this street kid. Somehow, Julio Diaz had the presence of mind not to only see his own truly deserved safety at stake, but to wait a second and see that by laying down his right to a simple evening, he could do something beautiful in this kid's life. Diaz laid down a few hours and gave this kid something transformative that he will remember for the rest of his changed life. There is always something at stake. Sometimes it's the good of another person, uh, like in this story. And keep in mind, Paul did say we ought to, in humility, think more highly of others than ourselves anyway. Sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes the, just the consistent thread in this is that in doing this, in yielding out of a desire to bring, this, uh, to bring God's kingdom values into this time and place, we are loving God and his creation well. Sometimes what's at stake is the benefit of other human beings, but always, always what's at stake is our character being conformed to the image of God. If we can flip back to Luke 6, the second part of that, um, near the end of this passage, Jesus tells us why he wants to do all these crazy countercultural things. Because if you do them, you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. This is about our very character, about whether we are more like this violent, self-centered, reactionary world or more like the God most high. There's a lot at stake for us too, we who claim to belong at Scum of the Earth Church. Scum of the Earth exists in part as a reaction against American entitlement and self-righteousness. I mean, I know a few of us, at the very least, are here because we got fed up with the belief of certain other churches who seem to believe that it's our right to feel comfortable in church the way it's been done. Uh, the belief that I'm entitled to church is a spectator sport that exists to entertain and feed me. We're here because we're trying to do better than that, right? Well, let's not get cocky. Folks at Scum are awful proud of all the ways that we don't screw up as a church, uh, but there are still plenty of ways we do. So I want to look for a minute at the way we at Scum of the Earth act under the influence of this delusion. What do scummers feel entitled to? How about, well, this service comes with a meal, right? I showed up. Give me a meal and a good one. Just last month, I overheard somebody complaining about potluck week. Uh, somebody who I hadn't even seen there before and actually haven't seen since said, well, this church has a budget for food. Why, why don't we get something good? I'm sorry. Something good. Because this awesome patchwork feast that we get every single time there's a potluck night, but people are pouring their love and effort into this, isn't good enough? Well, way to totally devalue the hard work your brothers and sisters are doing. Great encouragement. Incidentally, if you guys are curious, our budget for food each week is about 50 bucks. <laughs> Not quite up to expectations, right? When I heard about that story, uh, it reminded me of a situation in the book of Numbers that I stumbled onto recently. The Israelites are out wandering in the desert, which is kind of what they do for most of the Torah. And, uh, and then they grumble, which is the other thing, uh, about not having any food. Uh, and God, because he is unfairly patient and kind, gives them manna from heaven. Later on, they're still wandering. And uh, now they're grumbling about how they 
only have manna and not meat like we used to have back in Egypt in the good old days where we got beaten for not making bricks with no straw. Selective memory. And at that point, God hears this entitlement and just gets pissed. He says, you, you think you deserve quail? Okay, okay. You don't, but I'll give you quail. I will make it rain quail from the heavens until there is a three-foot-tall pile of quail corpses for a day's walk in each direction, and you will eat it until it comes out of your nostrils. <laughs> I love that that verse is in the Bible. <laughs> and while they're starting to eat the quail, while the meat is still between their ungrateful teeth, bam, God slaps them with a plague. He is so angry. And God is not particularly fond of entitlement. He loves thankfulness. He does not love a lack of it. Let's try a few others. Uh, things that I've heard in one form or another from inside the congregation, not just by visitors who might not really know the ethos of scum. Uh, let's try. I expect my brothers and sisters here to accept me as I am and not call me on my crap. Uh, not challenge me. Just love me. You guys realize that sentence doesn't make any sense at all, right? I mean, do you understand what agape love is? The most loving thing that all y'all can do for me personally is uh, if, you know, after the service or throughout the week or you happen to run into me just wherever, you see me doing something that is inhibiting my relationship with God or with my wife or with my friends or this church or our neighborhood to call me out on that junk. I give you all permission to do that. I do that because I love you guys and I trust you guys. And I know that if you love me with agape love, you're going to be watching out for my character and not just making me comfortable and letting me run my life into the ground. I mean, unconditional love doesn't mean that I get your love on my conditions. What if instead of getting offended when somebody does that, we waived our right to get offended when somebody criticizes us for something that we're doing, knowing that our own spiritual growth and our peace between us and that person are at stake. Next one. I expect a church building that is clean without me cleaning it. <laughs> guilt trip? No, no. Um, I'm not trying to guilt you into cleaning up, although if you do, thank you. You're awesome. Uh, I'm only telling you that so that you know that if you choose not to help with something, i.e. cleaning up this place, then you forfeit the right to complain about the dust on the countertops or the dirt on the floors. You never have the right to expect results that you did not contribute to. So what if instead of expecting a clean building, you laid that preconception down and either humbly accepted the place as it is or humbly picked up a mop and made it better? Knowing that both your character as a thankful child of God is at stake, but so is the way your church family thinks and talks about practical acts of service like that. I mean, people do what we see our friends doing, right? And if I, while I'm cleaning up, grumble about it, then it's going to be easier for you guys to grumble about it. Whereas if you choose to go into it as a, a cheerful giver, doing it as an act of service, and noticing the good things that are there and being thankful for them, you are making it easier for all of your brothers and sisters to be more thankful people. This is a stake. We don't normally think about it, but it is. Next one, I expect my crisis to be immediately dealt with by humans, like the staff, without having to wait for anyone, including God, even if that's what he knows you need. 
Look, there are a lot of people here to help. The staff, leadership, you're surrounded by people who genuinely do want to help you with stuff. And don't hear me saying, don't reach out to people. Do. That can often be the best thing in whatever situation you're going through. But other people are people too. I mean, stuff happens in their lives just like it happens in yours. Don't expect anyone to be an on-call caseworker for your emergency because that is what you are treating your friends like when you expect that they will help you immediately and on your terms. What if you chose patience? Because what's at stake is whether your friends feel valued as friends or whether they just feel like a vending machine for help. Here's a fun one. I expect a small group that fits me that I don't have to organize. <laughs> I'm pointing fingers at every church on this one, but we are by no means exempt. Christians everywhere have sort of accepted the world's indoctrination that we are consumers who merely pay or tip or tithe, and then other people come up with the services that we want to receive. Listen, God's family is not the home shopping network. You get out of something exactly what you put in, and nowhere is this truer than community. Consumers get nothing out because they think they have the right not to pour in, that they shouldn't have to. What if you waived your right to, say, the perfect small group? Because what's at stake is the possibility you will never join one and develop these meaningful relationships with folks if it's not exactly what you want it to be. What if you waived your right to be a Nielsen-rating Christian who just sits back and spectates while other people organize and lead instead of taking up the burden with them, which helps your brothers and sisters share the load? One last one. I expect customized community. I know you have never said this in those words. If you do, stop. But I'm pretty sure that me and everybody in here has thought that in one form or another, whether we realize it or not. If you appreciate your own individuality, and God knows my generation does, um, you have to appreciate the uniqueness of other people, which means other people will not be clones of you. Community is what happens when you take a lot of different pieces from a lot of different jigsaw puzzles and you find a way to make them all fit. It will not be uniform. It will not be predictable or comfortable in the way you like. It will not be easy. And that's the point. God cares too much for us to let us live as spoiled little kings and queens of our own tiny universes, just only accepting people that are like us. We have never had the right to a community that doesn't require work on our part. We never will. Here's a great bonus of Christian community, though. A couple of them. If you're having trouble seeing what might be at stake in a situation that you're going through, you can come to your brother or sister in the church and enlist an extra set of eyes. We can help each other see what these choices are about. We can also dialogue about, uh, with each other about when the situation you're in is more than just a backhand to strike you on the right cheek sort of situation when it might be one with real potential for harm or abuse. Please reach out to people and figure out what the situation is. That's the only way you're going to know the right response. And we can encourage each other to choose rightly. There are plenty of examples that you can think up, probably a few from the sermon, where you might question my judgment of a given situation, and that is okay. Maybe some of you think you really do have the guaranteed right to happiness on your terms, despite the fact that this is nowhere in the Bible. Maybe at a gut level, 
you believe what the Beastie, Beastie Boys said in their song anyway, that you really do have a right to things like partying uh, and that it's worth fighting for. I, I don't really know how you think that. I mean, you think you have the right to just like turn on the latest LMFAO single and do keg stands under a busted pinata? Like, doesn't really sound like a God-given right to me. But maybe you disagree. Maybe some of you think that Julio Diaz had the right to fight the teenager that tried to mug him, that he, in fact, should have knocked him down and then run to safety. And maybe some of you think that I had the right to prompt service by my landlord, even if I don't anymore. Point is, there are lots of gray areas on this topic about when we do or don't have a given right. And we can argue all day long about whether you do or don't have a right in a given situation, but let me make it easier for you. According to the example of Jesus Christ, if in a given situation, regardless of whether you have the right or not, if there is something to be gained in your character or in your relationship with God based on the trust required to lay something down, if by laying it down, there's a way to love someone well, if by laying it down, you can bring God's kingdom values into this broken and reactionary world of ours, then lay it down. It's not fair. Neither at face value is the way God doesn't smite us every time we do sins deserving of death. It's better than fairness. It's goodness. I want to leave you with one last bit of scripture, uh, our namesake verses, 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, from which we derive our identity as a community. And I want you to look at this, maybe for the first time, through the lens of fairness. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, and we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer with kindness. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the offscouring of all things. This is us, guys. This is you. Reacting with unfair goodness every time there is a situation that merits it. The same way God does every time we disrespect and hurt him. This is us, called to be humble, scum by the standards of the status-grabbing and self-defending world that we live in, ready at all times to lay down our rights to retribution or pride for the sake of the kingdom of God in all its glory. Let's live up to our name. Join me in prayer. God, we need strength bigger than ourselves to do this. You've called us to some tasks that go against everything this world tells us. Against our very need for security and self-worth and the way we are told to get those. This is hard and we cannot do this without you. So we lay our rights down before you now, asking you to take us and create something beautiful. Thanks for working toward our goodness in ways that we don't deserve. We love you too. Amen.